The Nigerian author Chimamanda Gozi Adichie once wrote, The single story creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. Well, today we're going to acknowledge the single story because it is true. But we're going to hear the other ones that we haven't heard yet, and they're true as well. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. which features my guest today on the program, Sam Sammytown McBride. Let me tell you a little bit about Sam McBride and Fang. Fang got their start in the early 80s right here in the East Bay. The Berkeley hardcore band's early beginnings were a little less hardcore and more experimental, but that lineup, which featured future Glass Eye bassist Brian Beatty, only lasted two years. The new lineup, with newly minted singer Sam McBride on vocals, became the punk rock powerhouse that blasted their way across the Bay Area with shows that were feral, wild, and filled with rabid intensity and hardcore muscle. But, feral as they were, Fang's fans felt a part of a discernible community. As a friend of mine who never missed a Fang show once said to me, being at a Fang concert was like being at a fistfight where everyone's winning. The band's first two efforts, Land Shark and Where the Wild Things Are, remain undisputed hardcore punk rock classics. And although that lineup dissolved in 85, McBride soldiered on with new personnel, and as a result, Fang's legacy became firmly cemented in punk rock lore, with their songs being covered over the years by everyone from Nirvana to Green Day to the Butthole Surfers. Now, Fang pretty much tore through the 80s on a pretty big winning streak, but the band came to a halt in 89. Now, this is where we get to the single story part of the story, and it's the part where McBride ends up in jail. San Quentin, to be specific. As I said at the top of the show, it's not that the single story isn't true. It is. But McBride has been talking about this particular truth in pretty much every interview he's done for the last 35 years. And to be honest, there's no point in having him talk about it again. Why? Well, no new insights or explanations are to be uncovered. We know everything. Sam has been very forthright about what happened, 
and his penitence, his remorse, and his sorrow, along with his understanding that he will carry this for the rest of his life, are very clear. Frankly, I didn't want to have that conversation with him. He's had it, ad infinitum. Look, over the years, I've interviewed people who have been interviewed their entire lives, and the challenge I've always set out for myself is to have conversations with them that haven't happened. My motto has always been, if it's on Wikipedia, then it's not on the podcast. My goal is to offer you something that goes beyond Google, something that you can't find out, something new, something fresh, new chapters to a book that you might have thought you were totally familiar with, but it turns out you weren't. Now, with respect to those involved, I think it would be very irresponsible not to mention this, but I've decided to mention it without mentioning it. This is not an attempt to pretend the past didn't happen. It did. But I want to give a different perspective of Sam McBride. If you're interested in the Fang story and what went down, Google it, and in three seconds, you'll know everything. But here is a different angle of Sam McBride, and frankly, it's one I think that hasn't been given before. Sam is a sensitive, soft-spoken, friendly, erudite, and really thoughtful guy. And this is quite a conversation. So let's add some chapters to the book, all right? Here we go. Me and Sam McBride of Fang having a chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Berkeley, because it seems to me like I can't my you know I can't put my finger on what's changed about it, but it's different. It's not the way it was in the '80s or probably even the '70s, obviously. But what exactly do you think is different about it, and what's your relationship to the city? Do you still feel like an affection for it? That's an interesting question. I guess I could say I feel indebted to it in some ways. Uh, a lot of the uh, things that made uh, things that shaped me came from growing up in, you know, Berkeley and Oakland in the 60s and the 70s. And there were a lot of uh, incredible things happening back then um, that really, I think, uh, still affect me and, and um, get, you know, I don't know, uh, gave me access uh, to ideas that I would not have had if I'd grown up in Nebraska, maybe, you know, or someplace uh far away. I mean, and, and, you know, I grew up uh, at a time when, you know, the Black Panthers, the SLA, uh, Patty Hearst was, uh, my father teach, well, taught at uh, Cal Berkeley. And Patty Hearst was his student, one of his students when she was kidnapped. So there, you know, the things that were happening were up close and personal, you know, uh, and so I think and there was so much going on then. Uh, I think that a lot of the punks, uh, a lot of the punk rock kids, it was sort of a, uh, a, a lot of our parents were, there was a lot of university brats that were in the scene in the East Bay, you know, in the late seventies and her early eighties. And, uh, and then I think there was sort of the anti hippie 
you know, because Berkeley was such a hippie town, you know, in, in a lot of ways. There was that, an anti-hippie sentiment uh, among the punk rock kids in uh, probably more so in Berkeley than in Oakland, but still just in the East Bay in general, you know, and, and it's, it has changed. I don't feel, I don't feel, I don't think that uh, the revolutionary spirit that existed uh, is as strong now as it was, you know, uh, certainly uh, some stuff was happening, you know, uh, when Trump, uh, was running for office, then when he was elected, and then uh, after Gary Floyd, um, you know, there was a, a protests were happening. Uh, the Proud Boys were trying to come to, you know, uh, Provo Park across from Berkeley High, and we were going down there and fighting the Proud Boys, uh, you know, uh, shutting down freeways. That that stuff was happening, but it it just doesn't seem that it, it, it doesn't seem like it is... That, that the real revolutionary spirit that was, uh, especially Berkeley, um, and well, Berkeley and Oakland, it, it, it's, it's just, I don't, I don't feel it anymore. I, I don't, I don't see it as much. That may be me too. You know, you could probably talk to other people and they're like, you're crazy. Like we're here, we're, we're doing stuff, you know? I think things are still happening, but I agree with you. I don't feel it anymore either, at least not as strong as it used to be. And even, I mean, frankly, Nebraska or Concord. When I was in Concord, for us Concord kids, we were politically, uh, we were idiots. We didn't know what was going on, right? You go through the tunnel in 1985 and the Berkeley kids did. I mean, yeah. there was definitely like, right? And so like, there was something that was very alive in Berkeley where kids were politically astute um, in a way that us Concord kids or anybody else, I don't think was. Yeah, I, 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 I don't, you know, I, I don't know, but I, I'm, that doesn't surprise me, you know, and, and I think just because it was, it was such, you know, uh, I don't think I was alone in that it was such a part of, of the culture then, um, you know, the, the university was really, I think, such a focal point in Berkeley. I mean, and I guess it still is, but it seemed like such a focal point and so much was going on. As far as you know, when I was a little kid, uh, you know, uh, uh, when I was a you know a little little kid, uh, the civil rights marches, things like that were going on. But then, uh, when I start to remember things, Vietnam, mm. you know, all the Vietnam War protests, and uh, and and that was that was huge, you know. So it was, and it was it was huge in Berkeley, you know. So I, I don't think you could grow up in uh berkeley or oakland and you know the black panthers i mean that you know that was oakland was the epicenter you know so i don't think you could grow up there and and not get sort of politically educated in spite of yourself you know you just it couldn't it, it happened uh because it was happening all around you what did your father teach uh he taught landscape architecture and plant ecology he was the chairman of the forestry department for a while. And so um, as a little kid, we spent a lot of time in the woods. And were, and also were there conversations at home about ecology and about what your father taught? Did those conversations come up at the dinner table about like what was going on? Were you enlightened as a young kid about those things? You know, that that's kind of ironic because really as far as, uh, you know, like the the uh, long-term effects of, uh, you know, global warming, greenhouse gases, he was uh, far more of a, a watcher than a, 
being involved, you know, and, and so I, I didn't really get those conversations. We certainly got a lot of conversations around, you know, and, and, and from the news, uh, you know, the, the politics, uh, the, uh, the Vietnam war, obviously Patty Hearst, we followed that every day because, you know, she was a student of his, but some of the things that you would assume, uh, would have been talked about for whatever reason, weren't really, you know, and I, I don't know why that was, you know, um, they, uh, my parents were, um, they were mid, you know, they, they were from the Missouri Ozarks, you know, and so uh, they, they had friends and associates with people that were, you know, involved students that were very involved in a lot of things, but they themselves um, were not, were not like that. So maybe that's why. Mm. And your mother was uh, an educator as well? Well, she had gone to school, but she was a, a stay-at-home mom. And she also, uh, as time went by, she was a paranoid psychotic. So she had some pretty severe mental health issues, which uh, uh, she was in uh, mental, had to be locked up in mental hospitals uh, repeatedly as, as uh, she got older and older. Mm, not when you were a young man. Uh, well, it started, it really started to manifest uh, um, I mean, if you look back, it was manifesting itself uh, very early on, but it, it definitely uh, got worse as as she got older. You know, uh, there there was a time I would say probably when I was eight, nine, ten around then, we used to have people over to the house. Uh, my my father had his students come over, and we'd have dinners, and and at some point that just stopped, and. You know, we didn't, you know, like as a kid, you don't really question that, you know, you're, you're doing your own thing, whatever. But, you know, in retrospect, looking back on it, it was because her mental health had really started to suffer and the, the paranoia and things like that uh, just I don't think would, would allow her to have a house full of people. Yeah. And we're talking about a time when, you know, referencing the 70s, 80s, even the 90s to a degree where music was and culture was very polarized and, and tribal in the sense that it's like i worked for kvhs remember that radio station in concord i do okay do. and so we you know you look at the guys in kvhs and the women too and it was like you knew they listened to judas priest just by looking at them right yeah. you you knew what their record collection was um i sort of infiltrated it with the sex pistols and the ramones and i got away with it but you you were supposed to be playing accept and um and venom right um, but it was very, and I, it's weird to think and to say out loud that I sort of missed the tribalism because it seemed to me that it was like the breakfast club, like, you know, it was cool where you knew where everybody stood. Mm -hmm. And I kind of liked that in a weird way. Um, but it feels like a strange thing to be, to be missing a polarized element of culture. But do you know what I'm talking about? Like, it was kind of cool. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I could go to any city almost in the world and walk down the street and see somebody with, you know, spike hair and have a place to stay. I mean, when, you know, that right. was literally like you would see somebody with a t-shirt on, you're like, okay, I can go talk to that person. And, you know, this is my new friend from, uh, you know, uh, whatever city you're in, you know? And, and so that part, I, I definitely missed that. And I, uh, you know, when it, when it changed, it was, I, I definitely uh, felt the loss, you know, when all of a sudden you couldn't really identify anymore, 
uh, when sort of, you know, just like any group, you know, when it, when it becomes marginalized, when it becomes brought into the mainstream and uh, all of a sudden, every, you know, everyone's got blue hair, you know, you don't know who anybody is anymore, you know? And so I, I absolutely miss those times where you could easily identify who, who was part of us and have an immediate connection. Yeah, and it's almost like you, you find your teammates all over the world with wearing those jerseys, as it were, right? No, um, 100%. When cheerleaders started getting tattoos, then, <laughs> right? It, it all changed. I mean, it, it, it definitely, yes. It was, uh, it was it, to me, you know, uh, the only thing that, you know, is constant is change. Uh, there was, uh, and so I, I try to, limit my lamentations and romantic you know romanticizing the past you know i think it's it's great to be able to have great memories but um there was a an interview with jim jarmish and he was talking about new york city and how how about you know everybody's bitching about how oh, new york city's changed and it's not the same da, da, da. and jim jarmish said new york city's always changed mm. it's never the same you know and that struck me so hard i'm like you know he's so right you know, that everything changes and to sit there and lament on how cool it used to be or how to, you know, uh, then uh, we're not, we're not in the present. We're not, we're not now. And then maybe we're missing out on the cool shit that's happening now, you know, and uh, certainly for me, I really try and pay attention to the, the young people, you know, that, uh, especially in the, in the punk rock scene, you've got, you know, a, a lot of people my age that have drifted over to the uh, goddamn kids get off my yard, you know, kind of an attitude and, and have gone politically in a way that I'm the polar opposite of. And, and so to me, that means I really have to pay attention to what the young people are saying and doing, because uh, I don't want to be, you know, when I was 15, somebody my age, I'm almost 60, you know, they'd be like, dude, get the fuck out of here. You know, like, I, like, you don't have anything to say that's important. You don't know anything anymore. And, and so I have to remember that. And so it's like, I need to be listening to, you know, what the kids are saying, you know, cause they really are the ones that know. Yeah. And also Jarmusch's point is a good one because in my brain, it was always like 1985 for 50 years before that, but it really wasn't. <laughs> like wildly inaccurate <laughs> right so true right um how do you pay attention to what the kids are saying like what is the is it a social media thing is it just when you're playing shows like how do you stay in tune with what um youth and young generations are sort of um trending towards i mean uh, social media definitely the news um and any place where the uh you know the kids are are uh pushing back, you know, um, and uh, I, I think, uh, and in the scene too, you know, I mean, the, 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 young, the young kids in the punk rock scene um, trying to uh, find out what, you know, the new bands and, and but, but just in general, I think, you know, the news and social media and really trying to pay attention to like what they're focused on, what they're saying, you know, a lot of the issues that come up these days, uh, you know, are the struggles with the LGBTQ youth and uh and everything that's happening with them and um and so i i really try and pay attention and, and hear what they're doing and um and and stay on top of it you know and really listen 
you know, ideas that that are that aren't really new, but that are are um, so important. You know, toxic masculinity, uh, just various things like that that weren't really in the in the conversations even ten years ago, that are now you know in the conversations now uh, that are super important. What do you make of punk rockers veering towards the right? Because I've seen that happening, and it's really quizzical to me. Um, I don't quite understand it, but then again, maybe again, I'm generalizing, but it does seem like there are people who names that you and I both know of people in bands that we always refer, you know, thought of as kind of revolutionary spirits that just took hard rights to um, a more conservative Trumpian way that, that I can't get my head around that. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me either. Uh, you know, I, I certainly don't want to put rules on punk rock, but that 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 is one thing that i i do not understand you know uh i think one of the uh like johnny rotten has certainly out of every like i mean there's been a lot of them but he in particular it's like just don't ruin the sex pistols for me <laughs> you know? i know uh you know and i yeah i don't i don't uh but but like i said that's even more why i really need to because i i still am you know, I still play, I still am going to shows, I still support the scene. So it's, it's, uh, that makes it far more important for me to, you know, interact with the young people and, and to let them know too, not everyone is, you know, not everyone from the old scene is like that. You know, that, that was one of the things that uh, when the protests were happening, um, uh, in Berkeley and in Oakland, you know, around Trump becoming the president, uh, I would go and I would try and drag some of the older people out there because the people that remember were the Gilman kids. I mean, there was a lot of other people out there, but from the scene, you know, it was like 15 year old, you know, Gilman kids that were out there at the protests. And I, you know, I didn't want them to uh, think that none of, none of the old, you know, the sort of the old punks that cared any, you know, it's like, we need to be there with them, show them, hey, we're, we're still here. We still support, you know, we're still, we're, we're, we've got your back. And, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, that's sort of beyond, I mean, I think people get comfortable, you know, I think the mm. cultural America is, is, uh, is, uh, is all about fear, you know, and so people get, you know, 40, 50, even 60. And, if they've been watching TV now for 40, 50, 60 years, they're indoctrinated, you know, that they, that it becomes very easy to become indoctrinated, to get tied into the fear and, uh, and to get to me to get lost, you know, and I think um, also just the politics of today are so, um, you know, and, and I don't think it's without, uh, without reason, you know, it's so divisive, you know, and, and, uh, and there's a reason for that, you know, but COVID also, I think, exacerbated everything to a great, well, Trump and that whole, you know, Q, that really, you know, it, it took a, a small fringe group and, and exploded them, you know, and so I think um, that a lot of middle-aged people that had bought into the fear you know, grab that as some sort of a, a lifeline, which to me is even more insane, you know, insane. It's like, the, no, no one cares about you. You know, if, 
if you think that the people uh, on the right at the top actually care anything about you, you're completely delusional. I mean, the same goes for the people in power on the left as well. I don't, you know, uh, I think all big politicians are are all, you know, just to get where you are in, in this world, you have to be a scumbag, you know? Yeah, and, and even if you love punk rock or you love indie movies, fear has a way of obliterating anything cool about you and making you cling to the stuff that's probably the wrong stuff. Fear does have a way of of working its way into people's psyche and making them make weird decisions because of it. Absolutely. And it's so prevalent now. It's it's so much it's so obvious, you know. Um I, I mean maybe it's always been obvious, but it, it seems more so today how you know they've just got everyone so afraid you know that that it it makes it easy to divide and conquer so to speak you know yeah you can pick any lock once you once you get people terrified mm-hmm. yeah. you know mm-hmm. For sure. i remember going to i was went to rasputin's when i was like 14 or 15 and i'd look at the punk rock stuff and i'd be like reagan's face was always exploding in an atom bomb on the most indie of releases and i i learned a lot about politics through punk rock and so I thought that, you know, with the Bush years, the Trump years, I thought punk rock would, you know, be activated in a, or energized in a way that I, maybe it was, but I don't feel like it was the way it was when we were kids with Reagan. It, it does not seem that way, you know, to me, but, uh, and, you know, I, I look for um, s- another uh, counterculture to, to sort of rise up, you know, and, and I think that there is one to a degree, but it, it doesn't seem to have, um, it's more uh, spread out, you know, and maybe that's just because the, the population is, is so much more spread out and that we have uh, so much access to more information now. I don't know, you know, but, it, you know, that there were, you know, sort of uh, going back beatniks, greasers, hippies, punk rockers, and then there wasn't necessarily a, there were some cultures, but I think if anything, the, uh, you know, there have been, um, if anything is sort of doing that now, or as, as a culture, it's the, it's the queer movement. It's, you know, the LGBTQ kids that, that really are, um, at the vanguard right now, you know, um, of, of what's going on and, and sort of the, the whole counterculture idea, you know, that, that are fighting. Because there, there's a real sense that they've mobilized. Yes, right. Exactly. Yeah, and and there's there is a uh, a um, a thread. You know, there's there's a, a defining thread. You know, sort of like with punk rock culture, you can kind of identify the people that are involved. You know, and and I think that uh, that's the same to a degree with with that community. You know, you can you can kind of identify who's you know their uh, they stand up. They're they're you know uh, proud and um, they are trying to be themselves. You know, in a world that's trying is very hard to shut them down. You know, and quite openly trying to shut them down. That's the yeah. part that is so. I mean, the fight is such a is such a um, out in the open fight where you know the, you you have politicians openly warring against them it's unbelievable yes and i mean uh, uh, that and uh something that that has been ongoing i don't in any way mean uh, the the black community you know black lives matter everything that 
has been going on. Um, but that's, you know, a, a horrendously such an ongoing uh, war, you know, such an ongoing conflict, you know, and, uh, and with very little forward movement. I mean, I think that uh, really uh, one of the reasons why I um, started going out to the protest, to, you know, against Trump was specifically because he really has uh, uh, his rhetoric and and the way that he has uh, uh, come out, it has energized the white power movement in in the United States to a degree that in you know in my almost sixty years I have never seen it. You know, I mean, certainly there were Nazi skinheads back in the day, uh, but it's but not like this. You know uh, that that it has. Uh, uh, exploded the the you know white power white supremacist movement uh, in in ways that is it's it's you know horrific you know what also blows me away is uh, you know that uh, I would imagine if you asked um, so many of these people that are involved uh, in that kind of a thing now they probably had grandfathers or great uncles or somebody that fought in the second world war against the Nazis. It's like such a cognitive distance. Like, don't, you know, how do you not see this, you know, but that's, that's the way of the world right now. Yeah. It's weird to see a politician who, you know, can, whose words can actually um, energize such a, um, such a scary part of our population, which was really in the shadows. And it sort of made them step out of the shadows. And like the Proud Boys, even the name suggests like we're in the light now. We're not, we're not in the shadows, right? right. Yeah. The shadow it, boys. Not not anymore. No, no. hundred no. percent there, you know, they're, you know, and that's uh, uh like I said in in, you know, in in my life, I, it was probably uh, uh before my times, you know, in the in the 50s. Uh, uh, you know, with the Klan and, and obviously before then for for a long, long time. Um, but it, it really seemed like that had been uh, pushed to the fringes, you know, and and it's it's not in the fringes anymore. I mean, you know, things that are happening, uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida, you know, uh, saying no African-American studies in school. It's like, you, it's just, it is mind blowing, you know, that that we... Uh, you know, one step forward and 10 steps back, you know, so it's, 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 I mean, you know, once again, it, you know, fear, uh, it's, it, it is, it's hard not to fall into, uh, into the whole, like I said, America is all about fear and control, you know, uh, and it, and it's hard not to fall into that on either side, you know, because it's so prevalent. Did you see when you were when you were early on in the days of Fang? Did you see a lot of kids in the punk rock movement whose parents were professors at Berkeley? Were there a lot of them? In in Berkeley, yeah, there was a lot of a lot of the the kids were university brats. Uh, there was you know, I mean, the scene was small then too. You yeah. And in, in, uh, I, um, you know, seventy nine, eighty, eighty one, eighty two. You know when there was a you know a, a lot of kids that were in the scene 
I want to say it seemed like at least half of us, if not more, were all, you know, all of our parents taught in some form or were connected to the university. You know, it, it, there was a lot of us, you know. Yeah, because I, I was um, thinking about that because I've been friends with Jesse from Op Ivy for a really long time. And his father, of course, taught there. Um, I'm sure you know Jesse. Oh, yeah. Yeah, forever. You know? Yeah. Yeah, great guy. And um, I, I also felt the interesting thing is with punk is that there were a lot of guys who went the university route. Milo went to college, right? I mean, it's like, that's what happened. Uh, Greg from Bad Religion became a professor. And, and there's a long list of um, dudes who, who sang or played in punk bands who went on to join the ranks of, of university professors. It was an interesting trend that way, I noticed. Right. Right. That was definitely not my not my path, but <laughs> uh, I went the whole other way. But um, yeah, but there there were definitely some some of the kids. Uh, I'm trying to think, you know, uh, of the Berkeley, you know, the, the Berkeley punk rock kids, if anybody actually became I think uh, there's a couple that I know that became uh, actually actually became professors. So a number of them went to went to college. There was kind of this sort of split to um that was uh that certainly affected me the um the crime side and the uh the really hard narcissistic uh, uh, narcissistic side the hard uh, uh narcissism that's not the word i'm looking for nihilistic side of punk rock and and then the more educated side of punk rock you know the the more the, the more art side of punk rock you know and i think that um there were there were sort of a a a split um for some of the kids that you know uh, that drifted more towards the drugs the crime the violence and then some that drifted more towards the um the art, the uh, the ideals side, you know, of of punk rock back then. I wonder if a lot of those kids whose parents were professors, if the punk rock, um, the melding of punk and politics was um, maybe the through line is also those conversations might have been happening as well in their homes that they that they because I didn't know anything when I was fourteen or fifteen about. But yet, I listened to some underground punk stuff in the you know at that age where they were speaking quite astutely about what was going on with Reagan and the Iran Contra stuff in Nicaragua and and I was blissfully unaware of that kind of thing. But I wonder if part of their education was coming from the fact that their parents were educators and those conversations might have been happening in their homes. I, I mean, that, that, that would that would make sense. I know that that politics certainly. We we always watched the news when we when we were eating dinner, you know, and there was a, a lot going on and uh, at the time, and I uh, think that there were a lot of conversations around politics, around things that were going on at the time. So I was, and I think that that was super common, you know, at that time. Uh, I think most families ate dinner and watched the news. Yeah, you know, it was it was sort of this. The next step uh, from the '50s, you know, uh, of a uh, sort of Americana, where you know you still ate as a family, um, it, you know, in in, a, in some homes, obviously, uh, 
And, but the difference was that everybody was watching the news, you know, while they were eating dinner, you know, and so that brought up, and also it's the local news. We're watching the news in, uh, you know, San Francisco, uh, that, you know, the news stations in San Francisco, which are going to be reporting local things, uh, which would be different from watching the news in, you know, uh, you know, Tennessee, probably, you know. It does get into your head, too, even as a young man. I mean, it sort of embeds itself in there. Yeah. And I think, you know, they, they certainly they're, it, it, you get educated about, you know, like, especially growing up in the in the Bay Area, uh, having a, a much better knowledge of things like the Black Panther. I was a, I was a Boy Scout and I was a, uh, the only white kid in this uh, troop in Oakland, Troop 7. Huey Newton's nephew was in my Boy Scout troop. Mm, with wow. So, you know, it wasn't just the news. It was just part of, you know, uh, part of uh, everyday life too. It, like I said, it, Patty Hearst was my dad's student. So that's, you know, uh, it wasn't something that was sort of just a random idea out here. It was actually, you know, just part of, uh, part of everyday life. So I, I'm sure that that had uh, a, a big impact. Did the Patty Hearst element also make you do a little dive into the Weather Underground just out of cu for curiosity's sake, like just to kind of see what was going on with her, reading up on it? And I mean, I, I definitely hear, wait, I don't even know that the irony about Patty Hearst, I don't know if you can see this, but there's the uh, iconic picture of Patty Hearst with, of course. The, you know, from the bank robbery. And yeah. uh, I've, I've totally followed Patty Hearst since I was a kid. You know, I read a lot about the SLA um, and, um, you know, I mean, <laughs> they, they kidnapped her and their ransom demands were to feed the homeless and the poor. That's what, you know, I mean, come on. That's like, you know, who else in history has done something like that? Robin Hood. Yeah. <laughs> Robin Hood, right. Robin Hood did, you know? Uh, so there was Robin Hood and the SLA and right. somehow nobody's comparing the SLA to Robin Hood, you know, uh, but, but they should, you know? Um, so, yeah. So I think that definitely uh, I have a long relationship in my mind with Patty Hearst, you know, and uh, uh, followed the SLA. I ended up working um, many, many, many years later uh, for a company and uh, one of the sort of junior members from the SLA, he had escaped prison time, you know, just barely because he was on the fringe far enough, you know, but we worked together for, for some time, you know, we talked uh, a lot about how things were. So, and there's still some people that are out there, you know, that were involved. And politically, that was a pretty punk rock move on with the whole the whole weather underground. The whole nature of it was very punk rock in spirit. Hundred percent, far more punk rock than we ever were. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to, to, for real, you know. Yeah, it's it was unbelievable. Did, I read this um, essay about Mick Jagger by Nick Kent, and he was talking about how Mick Jagger had this this interesting chameleon like ability to be, he could hang out with southern bikers and suddenly he would be fitting in with southern right almost like zelig in some ways um 
And I felt a little bit about you in my research, sort of like you could be at a Susie and the Banshees show. You could go to San Francisco and be with the punks over there. Um, you could move kind of freely and not everyone could, especially in such a polarized um, society artistically. And it probably gave you a vantage point. Like you probably didn't look out of place at a Susie and the Banshees concert. Um, so I imagine that gave you a cultural viewpoint that many people didn't have where you could kind of go behind the lines of all these different places and get a an idea of what was going on uh, no that's that's interesting but I, I i think that that's that's true and i don't know why that was um but i think that i definitely ended up going to a lot of places that a lot of people maybe couldn't go to hmm. um, and um and and was really uh, incredibly lucky that I was able to to just you know roll in and out of uh, all kinds of different areas. Uh, I think the the only place that I really uh, couldn't crack or couldn't uh, I went to Karachi, Pakistan in uh, it was like eighty six I think it was martial law and. Um, and I, I was supposed to be there for a week and I thought I was going to get, you know, this, I was, thought I was going to die. I could not, I couldn't find, uh, you know, a way to, uh, a way in, you know, and, and the people there, I think I had like blue and purple hair at the time. And there was just, there was no, uh, it, it was, it was way too dangerous <laughs> for me. I'm like, I'm going to get killed here you know and it was it was incredibly uh uh gnarly gnarly times uh in in, in karachi at, at that time too so i mean i have to take that into account but I, but i've definitely been uh in in places and have, have had access to places both uh on purpose and uh, uh because of uh, the lifestyle that i lived that led that uh, gave me access to places that a lot of people didn't get to see, you know, for good and bad. Um, but uh, it hopefully has broadened my um, my mind uh, a lot by being by being given access into uh, probably uh, I should have a lot more gratitude around it than I actually do, you know. Mm. Uh, but, but I do feel very lucky. Oh, yeah.
Why were you in Pakistan in 86? That was, it was just a, 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 a I was, I'd gotten through uh, my father. I'd gotten a job in Nepal as uh, I was helping him on a research project. Uh, at the time, uh, he and I had, uh, we had a lot of issues back and forth early on uh, that had bled over, but we were trying to sort of mend the bridges to a degree. And so he was working in uh, Nepal and he asked me if I wanted to go and uh, work with him for a while. So um, on that trip, uh, on my way back from Nepal, I stopped in Karachi, Pakistan and, uh, and Germany and then came back to the US. How did you find Nepal? How did you like it? Oh, it was incredible. We were working in the Himalayas uh, doing, at the time they had uh, the only uh, natural resources firewood. And so uh, the king of Nepal had hired my father uh, to do a, a landscape management program for the tiny villages up in the Himalayas, you know, because they were using more, uh, because they'd started letting the trekkers in, you know, uh, and the, so they were using more of the natural resource, the wood for firewood, than was being naturally replaced. So it was causing a lot of problems for the small villages to be able to survive. So uh, they hired my father to go up there and do uh, a landscape management program for the villages. So he was offered, uh, he had a stipend to bring on two uh, field research assistants. So he, I, I was able to go with him for that. And you were probably in your early 20s, right, at that time? I think 21. 21. Yeah, what a remarkable age to see Nepal. I mean, my God. It was it was an eye opening. I mean, I'd already so I'd moved Fang to to Germany in uh, in eighty five. Um, right. I was uh, you know I think I was still nineteen years old. We moved over there and we uh, and lived there for a year. So I uh, I'd already spent a lot of time in Europe, but going to uh, Nepal was was a huge eye opener because I'd been to Mexico, but I'd never seen um, the the way that you know you grow up with rose-colored glasses living in America, you know, and going to Nepal definitely was an eye-opener. Going to Pakistan was also in a, in a different way an eye-opener. Where you know I I thought I you know by the time I was twenty-one, I cop heroin in, in you know Harlem and uh, you know at two o'clock in the morning and spent a lot of time in super gnarly neighborhoods in you know, all over the United States, but it was, uh, it, it was nothing like at that time, the, the tenseness and the, the danger that, uh, that Karachi, Pakistan, uh, had, you know, that it was, uh, there was so much political unrest and, um, and it was far more like being in a, in a war zone, you know, um, than than anything that I'd experienced, and also just being alone there too was was was, you know, because it, even being in uh, prison, like in Soledad, when shit would kick off, uh, and it would become a war zone, you weren't, uh, you know, you had you had homeboys, you weren't just alone, you know, um, and and so it was very different, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you were by yourself in Pakistan. Was there ever a moment when you were there where you were like? Maybe this wasn't the best idea. <laughs> oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, I was gonna. I was supposed to be there for like a week, 
And after, after three days, uh, you know, uh, just walking down the street, people, and I, I, you know, I totally understood where they were coming from. Obviously I was a Westerner, mm. uh, you know, and, and there was so much animosity to the point of people, you know, like spitting in front of where I was walking and, and yelling at me. And some of these people had, you know, uh, rifles and, and I get it, you know, I, I would, you know, uh, I understand why people in most of the countries around the world hate America. I, I do. And if I had been killed at that time, I, uh, I get, I would have gotten that too. It's like, yeah, that uh, if I was, if I was them, I would want to shoot me as well, you know? Um, but uh, after like three days of that, I'm like, okay, um, this is, uh, I'm not getting anything out of this. This is, this is really, uh, this is really not, not where I should be. So I changed my ticket and, and went on to Germany from there instead of staying, trying to stay for a whole week. There was a lot of unrest. Like I said, there was martial law at that time. Uh, there'd been a bombing. And so, you know, uh, sun goes down, you know, nobody's on the streets. And it, so it was, uh, there was a, a lot of unrest, you know, at the time. Was your purpose in choosing Pakistan just like, this'll be interesting? Is that what you were saying? <laughs> Yes, that was, you know, because I was trying to plot because I, I was uh, going from Nepal, I was, I wanted to go through Germany. Uh, at the time, you know, uh, I was, I was still dealing uh, drugs. And so I had people in Germany that were dealing drugs for me. So I had money sitting waiting for me in Germany. So mm. it, it just seemed like a, a stopping point. It's like, okay, I was like looking at a map. Well, what, what what's between Nepal and Germany that might be cool? And I, you know, it was just a random. Okay, well, let's try Karachi. Let's see what happens. You know, uh, but yeah, that didn't work out so well. You know. How did you find the people of Nepal? The people of Nepal were uh, incredible. You know, uh, you know, they were. Um, it, <laughs> that's a whole another story. So. You know, I, I get there and there's two teams. There's a, a team of professors from um, from Wales and then my father and uh, and myself. Uh, and so we, you know, we're in town, uh, you know, in Kathmandu kind of getting preparation and everything. And, that, and they stayed, there was a, a more like a, a hotel in one part of town and I stayed in a tea house you know, and, um, and was basically just roaming Kathmandu alone, you know, uh, which was awesome. People were super, super friendly. Um, and, but then we, we go up into, into the Himalayas and we had, we had, you know, a, a team of Sherpas that were taking us up there and, um, and we set up camp to, to do the research in this tiny village uh, called Sibru. And it was, I don't know, it like, 12,000 or 14,000 feet, you know, tiny little village, but we get there and the first night they, they set up a, a tent and it, it was, they said it was like the dining tent. And, and it, so I ate with, you know, with us the first night, but that uh, the next day I, I pulled my father aside. I'm like, I can't do this. I'm like, this is, this is not okay with me. I'm going to eat with the Sherpas, you know, and, and uh, it, it caused some flack, uh, especially with the uh, professors from the UK, 
Mm. You know, uh, I mean, I didn't say anything to him, but I'm just like, yeah, this is not okay. I'm not doing this. I cannot sit there and be served. I'm like, no, I'm not fucking doing this. So I uh, ate with the Sherpas and hung out. And I think the the first night they were a little bit like, what is he doing? You know, uh, but then they started passing out around a bottle of rum and uh, and and we all ended up getting drunk together. And then, uh, and you know, and then I had a, you know, a, a great relationship. They, they, there was two that worked with me out. We were collecting samples every day and they loved to fuck with me. You know, they, they, they had so much fun because we'd be, you know, like way up in the Himalayas in the middle of nowhere, kind of, and they'd be like, tiger, tiger, <laughs> because the tigers were a problem up there. And they'd scramble up a tree and I'd be trying to scramble up a tree and I'd get up in a tree and then they'd just start fucking laughing and pointing because there was no tiger, you know, they, <laughs> they, they had a blast fucking with me like that, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I, the people in Nepal were, were amazing. And uh, certainly once I got away from the, uh, the separation that the professors from the UK had sort of implemented, um, it was, uh, for me, it was, you know, an incredible, incredible trip. How long were you there? Uh, we were there for, we were up in the Himalayas, I want to say for about almost three weeks. We were wow. in for a while, you know, uh, and uh, I, we were supposed to stay longer, but my father ended up getting sick. I think we were supposed to be there for almost, he got pretty sick and, uh, and he, we ended up uh, having to, we, we got out of the Himalayas and we were back in, Kathmandu and we were talking about going back but he it, he was just I mean it wasn't that he was that old but just you know I mean I, and I don't even know I don't remember what what it was probably just something he ate you know but you get uh you get sick back then and he was so we cut the trip short you know uh and he went back to the United States and then I I went on how were you I mean, I'm just curious in Nepal how were you keeping the like your drug habit secret or did you just stop or how would you manage to so at the time um i i wasn't strung out and so like we went through thailand on the way to nepal and uh you know and i i went and uh and caught heroin in thailand um and got super fucked up for days but i still i had uh i, I the first time i was strung out i was 16 and then I, I kicked for the first time at 17 on heroin. Um, and then I would, I would go, uh, I would get strung out and kick, but it wasn't, um, there were times where I wasn't physically addicted, you know? And, and so it, it, and in Germany, when I moved to Germany, I stopped, everybody drank like fish there, mm -hmm. but in the punk scene, heroin in, uh, specifically was very much frowned upon. And so I, I really didn't, uh, I didn't use uh, heroin when I was, when we were living in Germany and when I would go to Germany. And so that trip too, like I got to Thailand, they had incredible heroin there at the time, but uh, I wasn't really strung out. I did it for, you know, four or five days in a row and then got to uh, Nepal and I did, you know, like I scored some hash and was smoking hash and, and, and drinking there, but I wasn't using, I didn't try and find uh, opium or, or heroin in, in Nepal. Um, mainly it was just, you know, smoking weed and well, smoking hash and, and drinking. 
Yeah, and scoring heroin in the, in the bowels of Thailand at night, it seems like your life could have gone Midnight Express if you weren't, you know, if you weren't careful. Um, play it with fire on that one. It, it was it was sketchy copping in in Bangkok, definitely. You know <laughs> that <laughs> that I'm riding in the back of a, a a rickshaw to go, you know, like to go cop, and I'm like, man, this guy's like taking me like outside, like I'm gonna end up. You know, like my passport's probably worth far more than my body. You know, just pull over and hack me up and throw me in the ditch and take my passport, and my money. You know, that certainly certainly crossed my mind. Uh, you know, copping in Thailand. You know, you seem like you've never been governed by fear, though. That you've the things that you've done, even just going to Nepal to to work or to score heroin in the night in Thailand. That those things are not you don't seem like you're ever powered by, you were very aware that, okay, this is a risky move, but it didn't make you not want to do the things that you did. It's a, you've lived kind of bold. I, I think that that's not from lack of fear. I think that that's from a, uh, a uh, unfortunately, a sort of twisted sense of shame around fear, mm. you know? And so it's um, that, uh, you know, I definitely grew up in a culture of toxic masculinity where, um, you know, I, fear was not allowed, you know, and so, uh, and fear was something to be ashamed of. And so uh, how as a, as a child, and then certainly as a teenager that, that, you know, uh, on into adulthood, uh, when I felt afraid, I would run towards whatever, mm. And and that's not not a healthy not a healthy way to deal with fear, um, you know. And it's because and it really was because of the shame uh, and that I felt for feeling afraid, you know, that that had been instilled in me by society, but also a lot by, uh, you know, uh, my father, and um, you know the shame around being being afraid, um, and and so that uh, that drove me uh, drove me to a lot of. Uh, dangerous, dangerous places, you know, like I said, instead of maybe making a rational decision, going, okay, yes, this is something you should be afraid of. I'm like, yes, this is something you should be afraid of. And now you're going to run right towards it, you know, <laughs> because if you, if you don't, then you're not a man, mm. you know? And, and so that, uh, that idea, that, um, that framework that uh, that I was operating from was uh, for me well, and I think for millions of of of, of men, it's it's uh, so so toxic, so it's so damaging. You know, it's incredibly damaging. You know, to 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 us, and then to everybody that comes into contact with us as well. Right. So the things that you were doing had a certain kind of tension. It wasn't like you were just blithely going in midnight into the low reaches of Thailand, you did have, there was tension there where you, right. But you had to face it head on. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, it was like, okay, uh, you feel afraid you have to do this now, you know, I see. And, and, and I mean, I, I don't know if it was that, uh, if I was that cognizant of, of that, but in looking back, certainly, you know, that, uh, that it it was it, it wasn't that I didn't have breaks. It's that if I noticed myself applying them, I uh, would feel 
you know, shame around that and then have to do whatever it was that, that had created that, that feeling, you know? Can you reverse the wiring on that? Have you found at this point in your life that you, you've been able to kind of switch those wires where you don't feel that way anymore? I'm still a work in progress, uh, still, <laughs> you know, the, there's a lot of hard wiring. Uh, I think uh, now like the, the, the work that I do uh, helps to helps uh, helps me probably uh, more so than I think the people that I work with. Uh, I teach domestic violence classes, and so a lot of that is changing belief systems. Mm-hmm. You know? And so um, you know, I I sit and facilitate groups with guys, and you know, uh, you know, it it is. Uh, it's transformative and it's, it's transformative for me, but it's, it's, it's a process. It's a long process. And, um, I, I will be working on it until I'm dead, you know, that, that there's, uh, things that are so engraved. It's not like, uh, you ever graduate, right. You know, that's it, just, you know, as far as doing any kind of interpersonal work and growth, you don't, you don't someday just, uh, or at least, <laughs> I, I've never seen anybody just go, ah, and, you know, all of right. a sudden it was good forever. You know, it's, it's, it's constant work. You don't get to spike the football and celebrate. No, no. <laughs> and nor should you get a gold star. You're just trying to be an okay, decent person, you know? And so it's like, it's not, you know, it's not about accolades. It's like, okay, no, there's uh, ways that I need to do a lot of work to be a, a decent person. You know, and um, so, yeah, so it's not, you don't get a, you don't get a spike the ball. You don't get a gold star. You don't get a graduate. It's just the work in process. You just keep going. Were you aware of your own, that cultural shape-shifting skill that you had? Were you aware of that? Did you realize that you could kind of move wherever you wanted to go aside from Pakistan? But did you, did you notice that about yourself or was that something in retrospect? You go, oh, wow, I did seem to have a free pass certain places. You know, it, uh, I did notice that because uh, one of my first hustles when I was uh, maybe, I don't know, I was in uh, middle school, I was like a sixth grader. I'd gone with my parents. Uh, we went to, to Chinatown in San Francisco, you know, and I'm sitting in the back of the station wagon because everybody at that time was riding around in station wagons. This was the 70s. Uh, fireworks were, you know, really illegal in California. You couldn't find them anywhere. And we're sitting at a stoplight in Chinatown in San Francisco. And I see a couple kids and some other kids walk up to him and they're standing at a garbage can. And I see kids, you know, some kids hand money to these guys standing at the garbage can and they reach in the garbage can and they pull out a brick of firecrackers and sell these kids a brick of firecrackers. They were selling firecrackers because you couldn't find them in California at that time. So the next weekend I'm on the F bus going into San Francisco and I'm, wandering around Chinatown till I find these kids selling fire and I buy firecrackers and I go and I'm selling them at school for a huge markup. And I wasn't even smart about it. I'm telling everybody how I, you know, like where I got them. But what I did notice is that even though I told everyone, nobody else was, it was a good hustle. Everybody was like, damn, you know, like I was making good money. Uh, But other people weren't doing that. And, and so I, I, I don't know, I, I did notice that on, on some level at, you know, at that time, you know, and, and, 
it did sort of strike me. It's like, well, why, why isn't everybody else doing this too? You know, and I, I, I didn't spend long nights contemplating it, but, but it yeah. was something that, that I noticed. And then something that I also, I'm like, okay, maybe I have this ability. How do I use that to my advantage? You know, and, and that certainly was, was the case for me, you know, uh, even just moving Fang to Germany, you know, uh, I mean, I was 19. I'm like, you know, let's, let's do this. No one, like no one else is doing this. Let's do this, you know? And, uh, and so I told the other guys in the band, I'm like, okay, we're moving to Germany in, you know, four months or three months. You guys, uh, I think the plane tickets were like $250 or something back then. So, you know, I said, you've got three months to, you know, like make, get your plane ticket money together. And once we get there, uh, I'll, I'll take care of us until like, maybe we get jobs or, or, you know, we start making money on our own and I'll float the band. And out of the four of us, only, only the bass player uh, got it together. And actually it was cause I was helping him out uh, mm. a lot, but it's sort of the same idea, you know, that there, there were some, you know, MDC were, they were making a lot of moves, uh, you know, and, and, and traveling a lot, but, but people just weren't doing that, you know? And so um, I think that, you know, I saw that I'm like, let's, let's go to Europe. Let's start touring over there. And I think that that's that same sort of um, thing about just being, uh, being, I don't know, uh, I don't, I don't want to say not having fear, but uh, giving myself uh, a pass to just go try stuff, you know, and, and just throw it out there and see what happens, you know. There's also an incredible work ethic, um, you know, with even with the, the drug business, right? I mean, like, if you put that in another context, you've created crypto or you're running Goldman Sachs. I mean, you were very industrious, you know. <laughs> For, yes, if, until, until it all went horribly awry. But yeah, I, I was definitely uh, an, an industrious kid. This is true, you know. And I mean, I think that that's too, you know. I mean, I I did have privilege, you know. I did have education, um, you know. I I did, uh, you know, as a a kid, uh, we did travel, and, and you know, so I think that that opened doors for me, and and maybe made me less, uh, you know less in fear about uh, about going places i also think sort of in retrospect too my parents um parenting style uh although it definitely had its downsides we would go uh we moved to um we moved to wales when i in uh 78 i think at, my dad went on sabbatical and then, and then we went from there. We were in London for a while, and we were in Paris. And this is my introduction to punk rock. Um, but I, I would just go, you know. My parents, you know, like, oh, well, we're we're in London. Here's an underground pass, you know. Uh, it's eight o'clock in the morning. Be back for dinner. Here's ten pounds. <laughs> and, and you know, so I would just roam. You know, and uh, when we were living in Wales, I just, you know, uh, okay, here's a, here's like, here's the bus, here's the bus uh, map, you know, and, and I would, I would just uh, roam on my own. Uh, and, in in retrospect, looking back on it, you know, 
I don't think that uh, I necessarily, you know, when my kids were 12, if I was in a foreign country, would say, okay, I'll see you in 10 hours. Here's the bus pass. Have fun. Right. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> I think that, that you know, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that might be, I might be a little more, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, a, a little less likely to just be so cavalier, you know, um, but I think it, it, and it, it did end up working for me where maybe I, I, I you know, other people, uh, if they were more sheltered, uh, for whatever reason, um, it, it made them more concerned about just, you know, okay, like, let's just try this. What the hell, you know? So you had a combination of industry and independence at a really early age, which is a, which is a really great combination when you think about it in terms of seeing the world, understanding cultures, being open to what you see, and being not afraid to try things. Um, and you know, people, you know, and meet people. Meeting people, yeah. You know that that you know I I would I would meet people everywhere. You know, and for the most part, you know, there was a couple times where things got weird and there were some some creepy people especially when i was like a, a young kid like roaming around in wales especially there were a lot of uh older men that were uh you know that had a very pedophile feel to them that i uh would sort of just get the feeling and then you know just take off you know uh, but but certainly just yeah it, i think it opened up a lot of uh, a lot of ideas and a lot of doors you know later on too especially are you still traveling do you still like to go i love to travel you know i mean we went uh we went to greece this year gosh um and i love to tour you know i mean the band still tours and uh that's we don't you know we don't uh, we're, we're all kind of spread out now i moved to arizona uh, i live in tucson one of my guitar players he actually moved down here too. And then we have a Tucson drummer now, but our bass player still lives in San Francisco. And one of our guitar players lives in Mexico, you know, but my focus, especially like the last 10 years has been touring out of the United States. Mm. You know, so uh, in the last 10 years, we've toured Mexico uh, a few times, Brazil, Japan, uh, Europe. Uh, we're going back to Europe, um, you know, trying to get out and, and play uh, you know, out of the U.S. as much as possible. Um, and then on top of that, uh, you know, uh, my uh, fiance and I, we love to travel and we, we try and travel as much as possible. Where is a place you'd like to go that you have not gone? Mm, India. Never gone India. to India. Really, really want to go to India. Um, and uh, and uh, I really want to go to Istanbul. Never been to Istanbul. Uh, there's There's a lot of places that I really, you know, that I really, really want to see, and um, and uh, really going to try, you know. And is so there is a new Fang album. There is a new Fang album. Uh, it's called No Warning Shots Fired. It is going. To, it's coming out this week. Um, this is the first. Uh, I I put the record out myself. Like we 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 did it ourselves. That the. Um, the everything has changed so much in, in in music, you know, with since computers and the internet, that uh, indie labels it's it's such a hard road for an indie label, and and ultimately, uh, they're they're not really necessary anymore. Right. But I mean, for for us, you know, since we've been around so long, we have we have a very small niche. You know, I mean, Fang doesn't make any money. 
you know, I mean, we, we, you know, I do this out of love for the music and, uh, and being able to connect with people. Um, and, you know, and because I have, and also just reconnecting with friends now that I've known for, you know, 40 years, this is the, uh, 40th anniversary of land shark. Our first record came out in 1983. So, um, it's the 40th anniversary of land shark. So, uh, we put this record out ourselves. Uh, it's going to be, we have, um, a big cartel it's fang official big cartel that it'll be available on we'll sell it ourselves we will sell it at shows and then it's I, i'm working on getting distribution so at some point it may be in record stores too uh it'll be on Bandcamp, and probably i'll wait at least maybe a month or so but then it'll all populate on you know spotify and and all the uh you know platforms um but it's uh it is, this record is, we wrote the songs and, and I haven't really talked about this yet, but it is kind of an, and I, I'm not a big fan of the word, but an homage. All the songs on the record are um, in the style of bands that we loved. Hmm. You know? And so uh, it's got kind of a, a diverse um, uh, song. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, a couple more New York hardcore, very much Cro-Mags, uh, Agnostic Front, you know, uh, inspired songs. There's uh, Uniform Choice inspired, you know. So there's all these bands that that we we've listened to, and when we decided we wanted to write a new record, um, we we you know there's very much a Flipper inspired song, you know, and so um, it's 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 a nod to all of the the bands that you know i've been listening to my whole life now you know um and and uh, with with you know fang's own spin on them of course you know but uh but it was actually a lot, a lot of fun writing the record and uh and so i'm i'm excited that it's going to come out I, I feel pretty pretty happy making records is hard you know <laughs> and i've always been my own worst critic but uh but i'm pretty happy with the way everything came out Cool chat. Really fun to talk. No, I appreciate it. It was kind of different than a lot of stuff I've done. So uh, we went down to roads that I really don't usually normally go down, which I really appreciate. conversation sam mcbride of fang the new album is called no warning shots fired pick it up and satisfy all your fang needs at fangofficialmerch.bigcartel.com alex is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me bombshellradio.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with our radio station things are definitely happening on all fronts so do check out both sites Follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor or on Instagram at Embers Podcast or email me editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. 
Let's close the show with a longer listen to Drowning from No Warning Shots Fired by Fang. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. Thank you.